0: Welcome to Subtitles, where we spike the canon in music and movies. In each episode, we will offer up replacements for each title in the top 100 of a well-known, well-regarded ranking, and we'll walk away with a pair of subtitles which we think deserve more acclaim and to which attention must be paid. I'm Tim, and I'm replacing the entries on the 2007 AFI 100 Years 100 Movies list, starting with number 100 and working up.
1: I'm Matt. I'm replacing the top 100 entries on Spin Magazine's 2015 Top 300 Albums from 1985 to 2015, starting with number one and working down.
0: Here's how this works. The two of us have gone through each list, decided on a theme of the original entry, and have come up with a pair of potential replacement titles, which share that theme. We'll talk about that original entry. Sometimes we'll regret that we have to get rid of it, And sometimes we'll rejoice in being able to drop it, but this podcast is not just another dissection of an outmoded list. In part one of this episode, Matt had two new albums to talk through, and I made my choice for the Subtitles album list, and now in part two, I have two new movies to discuss, and Matt will decide which of them deserves a place on the Subtitles movies list. Sometimes I'll have listened to the albums, sometimes he'll have seen the movies, but at the end of the day, what matters is how well we've sold the titles. And at the end of some of those days, one of us will want to bop the other one for that choice. Once we have finished these lists off, we'll do some fun activities with these new lists we've collaborated on. But before we can get there, we have to do this. Today's title to be replaced is The Last Picture Show, the 1971 Peter Bogdanovich movie. I I do like to know this in advance, I guess. Matt, is this one you've come across?
1: I've heard of it. I've never actually seen this one.
0: I feel like this one is, is maybe a little underseen, um, which is a weird thing to think about because it's, historically, it's got to be one of the 25 most important movies in American history. Um, as far as that American new wave or the new Hollywood or whatever you want to call it, um, Easy Rider had come out a couple years before. And there had been other movies in 1970, especially Five Easy Pieces comes to mind for me there. But there were definitely others, um, which stand out as really good movies and really uh, successful movies that let people know that there was a new way of making, making film in this country that had been influenced by all of those European directors and all of that. Uh, but the new Hollywood, I think, really gains a, a sort of respectability – that's strongest in this movie. Um, Bogdanovich was kind of an unknown quantity. Before he made The Last Picture Show, his only other movie to speak of was Targets, which is this kind of low-budget, UT Austin shooter kind of movie, um, which I have not seen. I've heard kind of mixed reviews on. Uh, So he's not not well-known. He's not Dennis Hopper, who had been in lots of movies and who made Easy Rider with Peter Fonda, who of course comes from Hollywood royalty. Uh, he's not uh, Bob Rafelson, who is basically setting up a studio with somebody else and who happens to get Jack Nicholson at the early peak of his powers. Uh, Bogdanovich is, a, is sort of a movie brat who, who grows up loving them and worships at the feet of people like Orson Welles and John Ford and Howard Hawks. And this movie... I mean, there's a reason that when it came out, people said this is the most promising early movie from an American director since Citizen Kane. Like, you watch it and you get it. It has the same kind of look, to be perfectly honest, as something that Orson Welles might have done. Like, it he is someone who, when he was a kid, he used to go to the movies, and because he was a nerd, and bef- because this was before the internet, he used to, like write all the pertinent information on little index cards about every movie he ever saw, which I think is very endearing, but again, it's also a very nerdy thing to do. And he was somebody who who absolutely prided himself on being uh, a, an absolute geek about this stuff and, and who knew so much and could reference specific shots. And there are moments watching the last picture show um, where you just you just absolutely feel like he and... Uh, Robert Surtees, who is his DP on that, are doing the same kind of work that Orson Welles and Greg Toland were doing on Citizen Kane. There are deep focus shots that are just so reminiscent of it. The blocking is so reminiscent of it. Um, it's, it's a really outstanding movie. Uh, the story has, uh, unfortunately for Bogdanovich, who, got, uh, who had the, the story suggested to him, um, he read the book and he's like, there wasn't a picture show in this. And so it's based on the Larry McMurtry novel. Um, and the story is a, is a fairly straightforward one. It's about two guys uh, living in Anorine, Texas, which is, even by Texas standards is kind of the middle of nowhere. Um, the main character is named Sonny. He's played by Timothy Bottoms. Uh, and he, his best friend is Dwayne, who is played by a very young Jeff Bridges. Uh, a, a Jeff Bridges, who is almost shockingly young, it's kind of weird to see him in this, um, and the two of them are, are high school seniors. the The movie starts off after they've just gotten their uh, their helmets taken off, as it were, and losing this football game. It's their last football game for the high school. Um, both of them know that there's nowhere to go but down at this point. Um, it's a it's an oil town, and there's definitely like a surrounding community of wealth. But these guys don't come from anything. They're the kind of slackers who are going to spend the rest of their lives drinking, going to the pool hall, and, and, you know, resenting the fact that they're alive. So it's definitely a movie about this feeling of, of hopelessness. Uh, but the only thing that they, they find to hold on to, the thing that they they really both put a lot of stake in, is a young woman named J.C. Farrow, played by Sybil Shepherd, And she is really quite beautiful and she is this fascinating character that I don't know that Shepard is up to playing, Uh, but she is someone who is trying to be an adult and trying to look for thrills, but also a very, um, what's the word I'm looking for here, a very dull kind of person, someone who has very middle-class values, but also, um, also, wants to be sort of reckless and wild. And again, Shepard's not really up to this, uh, but she's the, the, the girl who they both fall for. There's a fight, you know, you can, you can see where this is going. Um, (laughs) the movie is, is famous for, I think the way that it's made, it, it definitely put Bogdanovich on the map. Um, and it was kind of an upset when this didn't win best picture. It, It lost to the French connection, which is another sort of new Hollywood standard by William Friedkin. Um, but I think a lot of people expected, including him, expected him to win uh, Best Director and expected that movie to win Best Picture at the ceremony. Um, and so much of it is, is about the design of it and the look of it and the feel of it. But it really is, as much as anything else, the acting that does it. So it, this is a movie with four, um, four Oscar winners. Two of them are for this movie. Uh, ben Johnson, who is playing a, a pool hall owner named Sam the Lion... Uh, a classic Western actor, he gets his his Oscar for this, uh, and so does Cloris Leachman, who is playing the wife of the the high school coach. Um, this this sad, uh, lonely woman who ends up having this lengthy affair with the with the Timothy Bottoms character, and of course Jeff Bridges went on to win an Oscar many years later, and so did Ellen Burstyn, who is playing uh, the Sybil Shepherd's character's mom. And this movie has such good performances all the way through that Bridges is almost kind of a weak link. I think Shepard is the only one who's really not up to her part. Bridges is very good. I think Leachman's great. Um, But the standouts are definitely, for me anyway, are definitely Ben Johnson, who's playing this old-fashioned pillar of decency, someone who uh, Sonny really looks up to. And when Sam the Lion dies, uh, sort of late in the movie, very unexpectedly, it definitely like brings everything else into perspective for these guys about how fleeting everything is and how, how quickly you can lose sort of a tentpole of your life. Um, and, and Ellen Burstyn is so good in this. She had a magnificent 70s, and this is the role that I think really kicks that off for her. She's uh, playing a woman who I think exemplifies this idea of cold comfort. And that's the theme I have in mind for this for this week. Uh, this idea of cold comfort, this idea that you can get something, but it's not as good as having the thing that it replaced. And don't ask about that with this podcast, or otherwise I will be sad. So the, <laughs> I just thought about that now, and I'm like, man, that's, that's rough. Uh, so the Ellen Burstyn character is named Lois... Uh, Lois, uh, is the wife of the guy who runs the oil rig in town or just outside of town. So she's wealthy, but we find out late in the movie that she had a a romantic relationship with Sam, uh, one that she has never been able to live up to ever since she's sleeping around with a bunch of other guys, um, including one, you know, handsome fella from the oil rig, but like nothing, nothing compares for her. There's nobody else who has ever been able to, to take Sam's place. And there's this absolutely incredible uh, monologue that she gives Sonny. Again, the classic spoiler alert thing. I know that we don't actually care about spoilers on the show, but I'm going to say it every time. Um, <laughs> there's a point in the movie where Sonny has run off with JC and they've gotten married, but her parents find out and, and her dad drags them back and he's taking her home. And Lois takes Sonny home, and she's very nice about the whole thing. Uh, she's she's worldly, and has an understanding of this. But she has, she discusses Sam with him, and she says, "I guess if it wasn't for Sam, I'd just about have missed it. Whatever it is, uh, old Sam the lion. One night while well, it just came to me, he was so pleased. I was 22 years old then. I'll tell you, Sonny." It's terrible to only meet one man in your whole life who knows what you're worth. Just terrible. I've looked, too. You wouldn't believe how I've looked. So here's a woman who is, again, she's like the Queen of Annarine. Uh She's wealthy, she's beautiful, uh, she's living in a place where no one else is wealthy or beautiful, but she understands that the best thing in her life is gone, and that maybe being the wife of the pool hall and movie theater owner wouldn't have done it for her. But she has gone her entire life now and she understands that she's never going to have the thing that made her feel the best. And I think that idea, is not it's in a lot of movies, but I think when Last Picture Show is at its best, it's doing that kind of idea. It's getting us to that particular point. Um, and that's something that I think is, is very, very strong in this movie. Did you have thinks about this before I before I introduce our next
1: two? I don't really. like. I don't know why. It's not because it doesn't sound interesting, but this is a movie that I've mentioned I've heard of it, and I've heard of it as this is an important film and probably one that I should have seen, and I know this has a... I don't, I, I, from what you were talking about, just... About a historical context, a fairly substantial role in American film. And I know what you said about it being underseen, like, I guess that rings true to me anecdotally that it's one that I hear about and, like, I recognize by the name, oh, that's something important, but I've just never gotten to it. And honestly, could have told you very little about it. Like, I knew some of the people in it, and that was about it.
0: See, if, I think if The Godfather had never been made, maybe we would be pointing to this as, like, really the absolute pinnacle of that new Hollywood. Not because I think it's the best movie from that period, but I think as far as that critical respect and even, to some extent, the awards respect, um, if The Godfather hadn't come out the next year and just been the, the hottest thing since sliced bread, um, we might we might look at this as maybe the one of the, the absolute great American movies, and obviously we still do, because I'm talking about it not as a subtitle, but as like, you know, the AFI list, which is the absolute establishment pick. Um But yeah, I don't I don't know what it is. I I don't come into a lot of contact again, this is anecdotal, but I don't come into a lot of contact with other people, or podcasts, or even like critics who are talking about this movie. And I don't know. There's just a lot to be said for it. Um, especially as far as that cold comfort idea goes. So I have two potential replacements for this, as we do, Um, and one of them is absolutely not like this at all, and the other one bears, I think, a vague resemblance. So we'll start with the one that has absolutely nothing to do with this movie, and that is Todd Haynes' uh, 1995 movie, Safe, which stars Julianne Moore, and this movie... I don't know. I'm just gonna put this out there. I was I was watching this one earlier today. Not that I need to because I've seen this a bunch of times, uh, and it's it's very much written in here. But I was saying that there are three American '90s movies that I think of as like the absolute pinnacle of that decade, and one of them is Safe, and the other two are Fargo and The Thin Red Line. And I think between those three, you have a very full story of what. Um, what the best in American movies were like in that decade. This is, a, this is such an interesting movie because it's allegorical in about half a dozen different ways. So if this is one you have not seen before, uh, essentially it stars Julianne Moore as this housewife, uh, not just any housewife, an incredibly rich housewife, living in the San Fernando Valley in the late 80s. And all of a sudden, it really is a very sudden thing, Uh, She just starts coming up with these phantom symptoms and The movies in two halves and in the first half she develops these symptoms. It's shortness of breath uh, this choking sensation coughing uh, lesions even just really unpleasant stuff that her doctors can't explain so the first part of this is everyone else around her fails to understand what's going on with her and in the second half of the movie she goes out to a place in New Mexico outside Albuquerque called the Renwood uh, Institute. And it's like a retreat, but it's also a full on new age cult pretty much. And she goes out there to, to get away from pollution and chemicals and her environmental sensitivity uh, and, and get into a, a clean, productive place. And the thing about this movie is that there is this incredible sense of cold comfort in that nothing protects her. There is no way to be safe. And she keeps looking for ways to get that, but can't have it. So in the first half of the movie, it's it's trying to educate herself. Um, it's very funny. There's something just really deliciously ironic about this upper middle class to playing rich woman who's decided that the best thing she can do to solve her problem is just to educate herself. And if she knows enough, that'll fix it. Um, which, I don't know, you can stare at some other middle class people. And, and there are a lot of people who just really think, if you know what's going on, that solves it. And the thing that multiple doctors say to her, uh, from, the, from the allergist to her GP, is we can uh, look at this and we know what's happening to you, but we can't tell you why. And over and over again, she goes to these people. And over and over again, she finds herself looking for something alternative. Uh, So she starts reaching out, and she finds a group that is... They have, like, a video and everything. They have uh, a tagline, which I can't get out of my head. Are you allergic to the 20th century? And it's it's this incredible line. And earlier in the movie there's this image that I think represents it perfectly. She's sitting in her car driving behind, like, a garbage truck or something. It just has fumes absolutely pouring off of it. And she's sitting in the car coughing while the people on the radio are discussing Ronald Reagan. Like, it's an image that's so perfect it almost hurts a little bit. Um, and that sense of, are you allergic to the 20th century, uh, definitely spurs her. And she, she gets excited about... Being able to try to fix this problem now that she knows what's up, she's going to wear a mask around, which is why this movie is getting a whole bunch of play right now. I think everyone got tired of Contagion and needed the next big thing. Uh, so Safe is a movie where people wear masks. Uh, she carries her oxygen tank with her, um, and she starts doing things to try to stave it off. But in the end, she still has to head out to, um, to New Mexico to try to see if she can't fix it. And while she's there, um, it, it's, it turns into less of a, of a critique of bourgeois values, which I think are perfectly summed up by this L.A. late 80s setting. Everything in the first half of this movie is pink and teal. It's unbelievable. Just this absolutely incredible wash of pink and teal, which turn into increasingly threatening colors as the movie goes on, which... Again, congratulations to Todd Haynes for figuring out how to do that.
1: Uh, Those are just two, like, colors. I mean, the longer you... They have a certain vibrancy and uplift to them initially, I think. And then the more you stare at them, the more sickly they become.
0: Yes, yes, I think that's exactly what he does. He turns her into this, this washed-out person. She wears increasing, like, the costume in this is great, too. And Julianne Moore is already, like, you know, pale and freckly and red-haired and everything. And she begins to get washed-out more and more as she's in L.A. And then she heads out to, to New Mexico, where we see her in white a whole lot, so she's standing out against this natural background. And even when she gets there, she's still coughing. And still crying, and still wearing her mask, and coming up with these new sores, and she feels like things are getting better there but there's no evidence for it like even when she like feels good about being there and can laugh with other people or whatever she still is showing all the same symptoms she did before uh there's this one very good scene where she's like out walking and she is just like you know exploring the terrain a little bit and she finds a highway and there's a giant truck driving on the road and almost runs her over. And the meaning of this, again, it's this very deliciously ironic, very funny, very scary moment where she's like, I thought I was creating this little utopia of cleanliness, and here I am, and if I just walk far enough, I'll find another highway. There's no getting away from it. Um, there There are two scenes towards the end of the movie which I think... Are all about this cold comfort, and in a way that I think is just so stark and and frightening. And the first one that I want to talk about is the last scene, which is confusing. I'll, I know, but the um the last scene Terrence. of the movie, she's um yeah she's she's uh basically retreated into this like little igloo, this little ceramic igloo where she's gonna hide. And what she wants to do is just hide away from everything else. She has given up on her little cabin. She's going to live in this windowless room, basically. And she goes to the tiny little mirror, and her face is totally washed out. The color from it is gone. Her hair looks brown. She has this big, this big sore on top of her head. It's almost like that's where they sucked her soul out of. And she looks into this mirror and says, I love you. I really love you over and over again to herself in this dead voice. And here she is. She has made herself totally safe from the outside. The air is filtered. Nothing from outside is getting in. And she may as well be dead. It is such a come down from everything else that's happened to her. Uh, Everything that she began with, this very comfortable suburban life, where the worst thing that could happen to her is that they deliver a black couch instead of a teal couch, has all come to this. And maybe she's safe. Maybe she's finally made herself safe but she has to look at her dead-looking face in the mirror and tell herself that she loves her. The other thing that I think makes this movie absolutely perfect is this character we only ever see from a distance. His name is Lester. And I've written about Lester so many times. It's almost hard, and it's still almost hard to describe. he's, He's wrapped up from head to toe in all of this fabric, and he does this weird, like, bird walk that is herky jerky and has no rhythm to it, it I don't know how Lana would take him to walk somewhere because it like his speed is variable and he's always looking at the direction of the camera somehow even though he's not looking where he's going and we find out that Lester is afraid and Lester is always afraid of his surroundings and that's why he's like that um, he's always wrapped up and when he goes outside he he just completely immerses himself in something that he thinks will protect him. He's safe, so we are led to believe, but he's too scared to do anything that would resemble human life. So those are my two great cold comfort moments from this movie, um, which again, I really do think is one of the one of the best of the 90s, just flat out one of the best movies ever made in this country.
1: So far, like you pointed out, those two heavy and sort of perfect moments for the theme, and I'm still thinking about the cinematography choices, and, like, there's short moments um, throughout that just, like, this continuous cold comfort to the viewer, even. Like, like separate, not separate from, but <clears throat> that are looking outward um, even more explicitly than the, the scenes you mentioned, even. Um, or Right, how much it's asking us to look at the cold comfort of our own lives outside the movies, um, with, with very pointed political moments. So, like I'm, I'm, I just keep thinking about how that sort of seeps through the whole movie um, and really comes through in these bursts of, like with Lester,
0: like the ending, which you talked about. I will say the cinematography in this is stunning. Like, this is one of the best shot movies I have ever seen in my life. The The credited DP is someone whose name I have never had to say out loud before, so we're going to see how it goes. Uh, Alex Nepomniasky, who is a Soviet-born yeah. DP who's an American. Um, and honestly, the only other movie I've ever even heard of that he shot is Never Been Kissed. So I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that maybe Haynes had a little bit of more to do with some of the photography in this. Uh, this. The set design is constantly filled with barriers. There's always something in the way. We're constantly at a distance from these people. Um, it, it really is just sort of a masterpiece of, of look and feel. Uh, it has a score that this movie predates Mulholland Drive, the movie, but not Twin Peaks, the TV show. Uh, so there's definitely like a Battle of Menti influence score happening here, which is very eerie and, and deep and electronic and strange. Um, and it's a it's a movie which is meant to be very unsettling. It's it's got so many wonderful qualities and all of it is just filled with dread. Uh, so, yeah, that's a for me, that's that's a very, very great movie.
1: So what's the second option you have for me? So
0: our second option is a movie that I think has more in common with uh, with the last picture show, uh, and that's The Bad and the Beautiful, which is the 1952 Vincente Minnelli film. It has a big old ensemble cast. The center of it is Kirk Douglas. Um, I was afraid I wouldn't be able to catch up with it again before we recorded, but just a couple nights ago, it was Lana Turner night or day both, on TCM, and she is one of the big stars in this film, and I was able to, to get to it again. Uh, the Bad and the Beautiful is like The Last Picture Show, a melodrama. Unlike The Last Picture Show, The Bad and the Beautiful is just, it's insane. This movie's wild. Uh, it is, it's a showbiz movie. Um, it was made at a time when there were a bunch of movies coming out about Broadway, like All About Eve is a Broadway movie. And this is very much in the same kind of vein. Uh, There's someone at the center of it, in this case, Kirk Douglas, uh, playing a film producer named Jonathan Shields, who is, I don't know, he's kind of a devil. He's like, he's an incredibly charming individual. He's uh, a brilliant finder of talent. He is a great cultivator of it. And he is also only concerned with himself. So the movie is in three acts. Um, it's a, it's a film which sort of follows him from his early days as a down-on-his-luck heir, heir to a throne. His father was a, was a big film producer, um, and he's hoping to get out of his father's shadow. And by the end of it, he's down on his luck again. He's uh, made a bunch of bad movies in a row, including one that he directed himself that turned out to be a big bomb, and now he has to, to rebuild himself. Uh, But it's told in in the series of three big flashbacks. The first one belongs to Barry Sullivan, who's playing a director named Fred Amiel, and Jonathan and uh, Fred meet at his dad's funeral, and the two of them don't get off to a good start, but eventually they end up becoming a very valuable pair of B-movie makers. And for my fellow film nerds out there, there is a wonderful... ...set of illusions where they basically come up with cat people. Uh, the, the Val lewton Jack Turner movie, which... Honestly, this is a movie that's got some beautiful cinematography as well. Also by Robert Surtees, almost 20 years before he did Last Picture Show, so that's a fun little connection. Um, there's some terrific stuff that happens with that, but... Beside the point. Um, eventually, Jonathan betrays Fred uh, when he steals his baby. Fred's been working on this one adaptation. He wants to make it the right way. No studio's been able to touch it or get their hands on it, and he's got the right idea, and at the last moment, Jonathan figures out how to make it, and he figures out how to make it without Fred. Um, The second person is Lana Turner, playing this uh, daughter of a great actor who's dead. Uh, Her name is Georgia Lorison. And Jonathan knew her dad and is, sees the brilliance that could be in her. Um, but she's a drunk. She's just an absolute alcoholic, um, trashed every night, no sense of, of purpose or will. And he decides, once he figures out that she's in love with him, he decides to pretend he's in love with her too. They make an incredible movie together. And then it comes out that he's been faking, so she also gives him up. And then the third, see, it's an increasing level of drama each time, which is what I love about this. The first level is like, okay, that's mean. The second level is like, oh, that's a bad man. And the third level is the time when Jonathan accidentally gets a guy's wife killed in a plane crash. Um, So that's fun. We don't have to get into the whole plot but like that's that's the kind of movie this is. It starts out with he stole my idea to he accidentally killed my wife.
1: That's <clears throat> I don't know, it feels like escalation is putting that mildly.
0: This is only a 2 hour movie. <laughs> I mean it's we like
1: get from I, like <laughs> we get from idea theft to wife, uh, murder.
0: It's, I mean, it, and it really isn't on purpose, but I just, I, I, Gloria Graham won Best Supporting Actress for her role in this, and she's in this for, like, ten minutes, it's, it's, it's a wild kind of win, but she's playing the southern belle, and it's not ever quite said out loud, but her husband took seven years to write this, uh, to write this novel, and, Jonathan realizes he's got to get her out of the way because all that she does is have sex with her husband and that's keeping him from working on the script that he's supposed to be writing and that's why he's like all right I got to get his wife out of the picture I've got to send his wife off in a plane so they will stop having sex long enough for this guy to write the script for my movie
1: I like I know I sort of fumbled through that but I'm like I keep envisioning this as the I don't know if it's still circulating a lot but the one meme where it's like you have the very small domino at first and it's just exponentially larger uh rectangles basically and you push one and they all fall and like that's what i'm imagining with this movie like very small thing at first and suddenly it's full blown by the end of the two hours
0: yeah no that's that's pretty much what it is i mean this all this all starts when he um he gets into the room to have a poker game with a with a B movie producer, played by Walter Pigeon. I love Walter Pigeon, anyway. Um and he, he loses and he he basically uses it as as a way to get in the guy's office and ask for a job, and by the end of it, he has grandiosely become like a David o. Selznick producer figure and ruined lives and ruined his own life and killed a couple of people, and it's it's pretty it's pretty nuts. Um, And you may be thinking to yourself, what on earth does this have to do with our theme? And the answer is, is that every time the flashback ends, uh, Harry Pebble, the producer played by Pigeon, who is now working for Jonathan, um, he looks at the person and says, okay, he did this crummy thing to you. So I'll use Fred as the example. Fred, he stole your movie. He kicked you out. He made you feel bad about yourself, and you know what happened to you? You learned that you had to stand up for yourself, and now you've won two Oscars as a director. And he does that with every one of them. He says, "Georgia, that's right. You were uh, you were living in the middle of of some bad neighborhood. You were too drunk to to do anything, and now you've been America's favorite female star for almost a decade." Um. And John or Jim, rather. Uh, Jim, you were, you know, a a professor at a college somewhere and now you've won a Pulitzer and you're the top paid screenwriter in Hollywood. And every time he's like, yeah, he really ruined you, didn't he? Uh, So it's, it's this very interesting interplay in this movie where he looks, we can look at all of these people and say, okay, you are now at the top of one of the most cutthroat professions in the world. And more than that, you have survived the person who got you there and who you blame for so many of the bad things that have happened to you. On the other hand, would you have been happier without something really catastrophic happening to you instead? Um, because essentially the movie is, is asking a question about careerism versus like an emotional health. Um, because all three of them are, are in an incredible place. With their with their careers, with their jobs, with again in in a field where it's so impossible to even get to any height, let alone the one that those three have reached, uh, and all it took was for them to take the thing they wanted most or cared about most, and had them ripped out from underneath them. So that's that's where this movie gets this sort of cold comfort. And at the end, there is this there's this very clever little scene. Um, essentially, the three of them have gathered in Harry's office as a favor so they can reject Jonathan over the phone um without having to come second hand and so Jonathan is out in Paris and he's calling Harry and he's got this terrific idea for a movie and he wants Fred to direct and he wants Georgia to star and he wants Jim to write and the three of them say no and walk out of the room and they can hear in the other room this is such an interesting moment They can hear Harry in the other room talking to Jonathan across the ocean and one of them picks up the phone and starts listening in and then the next one looks over and has to know what's going on until all three of them are trying very hard to hear what this terrific idea is that none of them should be interested in but none of them can stay away from either.
1: Yeah, I... Still processing a lot of that one. <clears throat> I like that connection to cold comfort though, and I like that view of. And I guess reading that in the sense of all these terrible things that happened also led you to something that ostensibly should be the best thing that happened to you, or that you've reached this level that so few do and so many fall along the way, and. Right, that took something beyond just sacrifice. That was, uh, I don't know, active trauma? Um, Pretty much, and that yeah. And the cold comfort here is like, I don't know, it's sort of a play on the like, you sold everything to get the dream, and is it worth it?
0: It's yeah. also interesting because this movie, and I've kind of referenced this, but this movie is not literally a Ramona Clef, but like, everyone in this is supposed to be someone else. So, if you draw, like, certain lines... Um, when I said David O. Selznick before, this is the guy who made Gone with the Wind um, and who started out with, like, making things like King Kong. Um, Jonathan is definitely a very Selznick personality. Um, and the one that really stands out to me... I don't think she's the most interesting character, but she's the most interesting potential uh, connection to a real person. Georgia is this person who's been brushing up against uh, showbiz ever since she was really young. And she is an alcoholic who is brilliant and beloved but can't control herself. And that reminds me very much of Judy Garland, uh, who at this point in her career was still a couple years out from her big comeback performance in A Star is Born. And the person directing this movie, Minnelli, is was married to her until about the time he made this movie. Uh, he they, they divorced in 1951, and Bad and the Beautiful is the year after. Uh, so there's there is definitely something very interesting going on there. Uh, there is something, I think, very personal about the Lana Turner role, and I think she's about as good in this as, ever, as I've ever seen her. Uh, I'm not the world's biggest Lana Turner stan, but she's very good in this, and there's I can't help but think that this incredible director of actors in Manelli pushed her in a direction that he recognized. And there is something, again, there's something personal and lived in about this Hollywood, even though it's it's an obvious fantasy. But at the same time, it's, it's skewering the fantasy in a very realistic way by using characters who are drawn from real life, and even movies, that you can say, oh yeah, that's definitely something that got made in the past.
1: So, you want to give me, like, the it's like the elevator pitch for each in the theme as I still kind of weigh in my mind which one I'm picking.
0: I think these two are so different that, that that's, a, that's a very fair way to go. And this is, I think safe is one of the first real wild cards I think I've tried to play here. Um, so if I were to say that safe is an aspect of cold comfort, it's it has to do with this idea of giving up everything else for a shot to potentially have the thing you want. So if this is the number one thing you want, and in the case of Carol and Safe, the number one thing she wants is to be safe from the polluted world outside, but in return you have to give up your life and all of the things that were decent about it in said polluted world. What have you won yourself? And for the bad and the beautiful, you have these three characters who have given up the thing that they treasured or prized most about themselves and in so doing they've become tremendously successful but they'll always know they'll never do it with the number one thing that they cared about that thing will always belong to jonathan who used them by by taking away that thing from them
1: i like both i think they both fit well And even if you identify safe as a wild card, it makes sense to me the way you pitch it. Um, I don't know. I feel like the other ones, there were good cases for everything, but this is the first one where I'm like, like, I could be pushed in either direction. Um, But I think I'm going to go with uh, safe am I
0: <laughs> do you want me to hear uh, do you want to hear the the pitch for the last picture show again yeah go ahead so for the last picture show what I think about that is this idea that you can get a great deal if you are willing to give up the thing you care about um, and in the case of that movie it's I think it's much literally closer to what it is in the bad and the beautiful where it could be romantic and the thing that you end up taking puts you ahead of a whole lot of other people. Uh, but like safe, I think it also has a lot to do with leaving you bereft. And I realize this is not going to convince you one way or the other the way I'm making this case. But like, I think that there is something about leaving you bereft of everything else if you take the bargain.
1: I, see, what I'm torn between is like, safe seems to be more of a... Right, like there are two sides of a coin that we're used to in terms of cold comfort and like, what would you give up to have the thing you want? And with the bad and the beautiful, that is sort of, okay, you have the thing you wanted, was it worth it and safe? It's the, uh, kind of a, the other framing of that where, would you give up all of this to have the one thing and... I, don't, I think I I think I am going to go with safe, because I'm interested in that side of it, and also because, right, then it's the, I don't know, it feels colder in a way, I guess, that it's, would you, would you give up everything to make the, in this case, safety possible? Um, or everything that you've known, would it even look the same after that? Um, I don't know, I guess there's sort of a cosmicness to that lens that appeals to me in this instance.
0: The cold thing that you said is actually really interesting because I do think that there is something much colder to the touch about Safe than, than Bad and the Beautiful. Bad and the Beautiful is a terrific movie, uh, but also very much like a, a Hollywood melodrama um, where there's an obvious kind of like warmth to it and interest that you can expect in, in many others. Uh, but Safe is definitely a little cold to the touch. It's clinical. And this is very literal of me, but so much of the movie in The Last Picture Show takes place in like fall and winter, and it's cold. Like, there is a literal coldness enveloping these people as they are acting coolly or badly towards each other. And maybe that's a little bit of pathetic fallacy, and you don't get that in, in Los Angeles. But I think that idea is there. I think there is a connection.
1: I see. I like that appeals to me, even if it does step into pathetic fallacy, but. I don't know that that speaks to me in a certain way so I think both of these would have been very good choices um and yeah for me it was just sort of I see them as kind of sides of the mobius strip of this cold comfort discussion and I'm going to gravitate towards safe a bit but I do generally think there's for me anyway kind of mostly even case here, where you could have pushed me either way with, I don't know, I guess a little bit, one way or the other. Um, But yeah, I'm going to go with Safe. So, we've replaced The Last Picture Show, a critically... I I keep thinking about this in terms of bands that are like critically beloved and just don't get play on the radio. Mm. Um, So, replacing... Uh, as Tim has said, a very important film in American cinema history with a film that he thinks is just straight up one of the best um, in Safe by Todd Haynes, and, of course, judging that by Cold Comfort and Safe's... uh, To me, anyway, this... Well, as you said, it this cold clinicism to it... um, and that's just a really evocative question to me, where to have the thing you want, you have to give up basically everything you know, and is it even the same at that point?
0: All right, so the next time you see us, uh, we will be showing up uh, with the album Exile in Guyville by Liz Fair and a movie, another Los Angeles movie from the 90s, uh, Pulp Fiction. So those are our next two subtitles to replace. Hope you enjoy. We'll see you next time.